You're listening to Vet Candy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Vet Candy IRL. And I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. So have you ever wondered what being a veterinarian outside of clinical practice might be? Or something that lets you travel the world and serve humans and animals and even your amazing country, America? Well, I have an amazing veterinarian that is here with me today to tell you all about her amazing stories and how she puts it. She just saw open doors and walked right through them. So help me welcome Dr. Tammy Zalewski. Hi, Tammy. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to hear all about your stories. Well, you'll have to help me narrow that down a little because I could get down a million rabbit holes of stories. All right. Well, let's start with, you know, were you someone who wanted to be a veterinarian since you were in diapers or was it kind of an older career transition? Well, I started out wanting to be a doctor since I was too small to even know what it was for my family. That's what I said. Then there was a left turn when I was at Wisconsin State Fair back in about 1985. That's another story of Revere, but I ended up switching to veterinary medicine. And for a lot of reasons, it was a good fit and started pursuing the requirements for that. Uh, Still had the curiosity for medicine, uh, whatever context. The reason for that is when I was a little girl, I was curious why you drank white milk and it came out yellow. And I figured if I was a doctor, I would learn why that happens. Um, And after four months of renal physiology, I did learn why. So I learned my childhood question. So that's why I went into medicine. Um, Obviously, that's oversimplified, but it's part of the story. That is quite an an involved question for a young kid to ask. (laughs) (laughs) You were destined for medicine. (laughs) I was. I had the curiosity for it. Absolutely. So then where did you go to vet school? I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. So it was one of, I think, I believe the seventh class. Oh, wow. So it was so pretty new. You are a military veterinarian. Was that something that was on your radar? No, I was pretty diehard dairy-oriented. Love and respect the the farmers and and their amazing lives with everything they need to know. So I love working with them. But a seed was planted about my third year of veterinary school, where I met an army veterinarian when a classmate of mine and I worked a sled dog race, the UP two hundred sled dog race, and an army veterinarian was working the the race. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. She gets time off to do a community support project like that. And so that was kind of a seed planted I didn't really realize at the time. And then my senior year, some medical recruiters came to the vet school and they had pizza. I was hungry, so I went to listen. So I listened and I think it nurtured that seed a little bit about the excitement and opportunities of an Army career and, and a little bit of it was financial. My student loans were pretty hefty. I don't need to preach that to many veterinarians. And, and so the, the thought of some stable income uh, for a few years just to start knocking out some student loans was, was obviously a benefit as well. So there's the Army and the Air Force that have veterinarians? Correct. 
The Army is actually the Department of Defense executive agent for all the veterinary clinics on every type of military installation. And the Air Force uses veterinarians as public health officers. So they don't serve in a, a purely clinical veterinary capacity, but they do serve in the very important role of public health. Oh, okay. That's awesome. And so after you went to this lunch talk and everything, what was the last thing that made you want to apply to be a military vet? Like what was like the one thing that kind of sold you on it? Kind of the final straw was when I was looking for jobs my senior year, looking at dairy practices, the milk prices dropped badly that spring and clients weren't calling their large animal vets, their dairy vets uh, as easily, but my student loans hadn't dropped. And so again, that appeal of a stable income for a while uh, to be able to pay off that debt was very appealing. And the other little piece was something called days off. The military gives you 30 days off a year. Dairy practice, you do not get that. Especially as the new graduate, some places are offering seven days off that first year. When you're on call, you're going to be out, out working. And so those, that combination of things, and then there's a little adventure piece of it, you know, that was, that it was just a different role for a while as a veterinarian. It, it all kind of came together to get me to talk to the recruiter closer and start doing that paperwork. Yeah, I can imagine that's a, a thick stack of paperwork. <laughs> and do you have to go through any like of the physical training or is there something different? Because you go in as a captain, right? When you graduate as a vet? You, you sign in as a second lieutenant because you get constructive credit for your four years of veterinary school. And then you come in as the second lieutenant and by the end of your basic training, you are a captain. So yes, you do go through a basic training at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, where the medical personnel for the military are all trained, but it is not quite as challenging as the basic training for an 18-year-old right out of school, right out of high school. A little bit more of a gentleman's course, especially for some of the medical components they, they can't beat up their doctors, nurses, and veterinarians too badly because uh, we're most of us are a few years older than, than the, uh, the youngsters. It wasn't bad, but, you know, you could sign up and challenge yourself with some of the additional courses and things they offered, and I did that throughout my career as well. Oh, that's awesome. You do have that when you get started, but, yeah, it's more optional for you as you stay into, in the Army uh, to go through some of the other more rigorous and demanding schools. What kind of um, programs do they offer veterinarians for continuing education uh, after you join um, the Army? When I was in, they were committed to making sure you have your full CME and maintain your licensure. That was absolutely a requirement. And so they paid for you to go to a conference each year. I don't know currently how with budget things, how that works, if that's, you know, still the case, but it was. I never had problems trying to maintain any of the requirements for licensure. Oh, that's great. And do you just keep your national license, like the credit for your NAVLI, or do you get a certain state license or? In the military, you are, it's mandatory that you have an active license in at least one state. 
for a while. I was licensed in three different states uh, because when I was stationed at, at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, I did want to practice on the side to build up my clinical skills and I had to be licensed in Texas. And so I fulfilled the requirements there and maintained that for, for a while. But then once I wasn't living in Texas, then I, there wasn't really any reason. But some states allow you to have an inactive license, you know, where you don't, don't have to start all over with the testing and, and paying the fees for testing. Oh, well, that's kind of nice. That's very generous. <laughs> We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. As a veterinarian, it's important to perfect your clinical skills. That's why Vet Candy created a master course in toxicology. The master course is taught by a board-certified criticalist and delivers a thorough evaluation of the science and clinical practice skills needed to master toxicology, from decontamination to treatment. And when you complete the course, you receive exclusive tools to celebrate, recognize, and share your accomplishment. And what's even more exciting, the course is free and provides race and New York State approved continuing education credits. This program is brought to you by Vitoquinol. Start learning today at myvetcandy.com forward slash talks. Start learning today at myvetcandy.com forward slash TOX. So after you went through basic training, you're a captain in the army. Now what happens? What, what, where did your life take you after that? Okay, there's, there's a few different pathways that a veterinarian can go. And I ended up actually being kept at Fort Sam Houston as an instructor for different medical specialties. I was a little older, a different background, had the engineering background. Um, from undergrad, and it was the early days of computers and the PCs, and I could pretty much take apart a PC and and get it get it working to however they needed. So they kind of liked that skill. Then I was able to be an instructor for not just veterinarians, but the nurses, special forces medics, the regular combat medics, and so that was really eye opening to be able to work with uh, the different medical personnel in the military. And so that was my first duty site. But a typical uh, young veterinarian in the Army would go to a clinic somewhere in the U.S. and actually run the veterinary clinic on a military installation. And that could be any type of military installation. It could be Marine, Air Force, anywhere. Oh, okay. So any military base that has a, a need for a veterinarian for their probably all working dogs, right? Something like that. Well, you split your time between uh, running the clinic for, for the pets of military personnel, but the priority and the reason the clinic is there is for those very valuable military working dogs. Right. Oh, that's nice. You can care for the, the pets of, like personal pets of the military members too. That's nice. Right, right. If you have the, the capability and, and time, then the clinics are open to, to soldiers and their family pets. And, but then you also balance your time out with our other big mission in the military is uh, as federal food inspectors. So anything paid for with a government check and used by any part of the military has to be inspected by an army veterinarian. 
So that is another huge part of our mission early on. And of course, we have veterinarians in federal roles in, in many different agencies. And so we are part of that force, uh, the federal force for food safety and defense for the government. Wow. So is that food inspection for any meat that gets brought into the United States or is it just for like specifically feeding the military? It's anything feeding the military or used by military personnel. So it could be, for example, when I was stationed at Fort Drum, I had 205 inspections a year and it could be anything from a Campbell soup plant to a sandwich shop that provides sandwiches for National Guard units on their weekend. So you were in some very formal, large food industry facilities and down to mom and pop shops. Whatever, anybody that, that uh, was used and paid for with a government check, an Army veterinarian was involved for that food safety. And we use the federal food code as the guide for ensuring uh, those food standards. Yes, very important to keep our men and women healthy in tip-top shape. <laughs> yes, it is. It's Napoleon said the army travels on their stomach, and that is very true to this day. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm not in the military, and I still travel on my stomach too, so I can agree <laughs> with that sentiment. <laughs> did you go overseas at all? Like, did you get deployed? I have been deployed to about 30 different countries officially. Added it up one day. I've been to about 65, I've lost track at 65 countries, but officially on orders, I've worked in about 30 countries. Of course, with everything with Iraq and Afghanistan, I've been in Iraq twice, Afghanistan four times uh, for actual combat tours. But some of those other places weren't exactly resort locations, uh, such as Sudan, Liberia, and some other places. I have been was overseas more than I was home for a while. I didn't exist back here. Uh, I was either preparing to go overseas, overseas, or recovering from being overseas. And, and it kept, it was a revolving door. And that is not a complaint. I loved it. It made the time go so fast because you were always in learn mode. I mean, and even, you know, when you travel and deploy that much, you know, some of the packing and, and getting the preparations can be kind of routine, but, but every place was so unique in its requirements for the mission that you were in a learning curve all the time. You were outside your comfort zone all the time. And that's what made it so fun. That made it the adventure. It, you know, it was always something thrown at you that you just, you weren't sure you could handle and you just figure it out. And that was part, that was the, the attractiveness of that kind of life was being able to do that over and over in different environments. You know, you, you get off the plane and the air is different, you know, the, the food's different, the architecture, the people, everything, you know, cultural nuances, everything was different. And so that's, that's what made it so fun. And that's where I say that the years absolutely flew by. There were some very, very long days though. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Julio Alonso, and I'm here to tell you about my new show on Pet Candy TV. You can learn all about how to take the best care of your pets. 
Stream at My Pet Candy 24-7 on YouTube, iTunes, and most other video platforms. And when you're a veterinarian getting off this massive plane in a completely new country for the first time, I mean, what is that like? I mean, what is your role as a veterinarian when you get deployed? Like, say, a day, an average day in your life when you get deployed, what does that look like? That's where it gets challenging to answer because the mission was so unique. You know, there were the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan that you went with a veterinary unit and you are dispersed across the country to oversee the food safety and defense of all food that went into, you know, the chow halls, we call them, you know, that basically fed all the military personnel on the ground and, and the contractors as well. You were very oriented to checking food storage, food handling, food preparation, and making sure that the standards were maintained, even in a very rustic environment. Um, so that's one area that, that veterinarians covered. But then some of those doors I opened that were a little different. I was with the CDC for with the Epidemic Intelligence Service. When I matched up with a, a group in the CDC, it was the International Emergency and Refugee Health Group. And it was at the time, one of the smaller components that worked overseas with the CDC. Uh, now, of course, their mission has become much more global with SARS and everything since. But that attracted me and it worked out well that uh, I deployed, I think, to about eight different countries with them, though, I was, you know, owned by the Army, working with the CDC, who then loaned me out to the UN in Africa. But ended up, you know, working in Sudan as the epidemiologist overseeing a study of uh, nutrition levels in children in areas that the World Food Pro Program was trying to feed. And they had never gotten hard data for baseline data to see if their food programs were working. So we were one of the first studies with the UN and the World Food Pro Program component of that. And because I was trained as an epidemiologist through the CDC, I could go and make sure there was data integrity and design integrity to the study to make sure that the resulting data and papers would be valid. This is a couple examples. You know, I ended up in Cambodia overseeing a a study funded by Harvard University on long-term traumatic effects of landmine victims post Camer Rouge. And so I just, like I said, I could, uh, <laughs> I have a whole briefing actually summarizing some of these unique projects that I got involved in around the world that definitely a little a step over to the left or right as a dairy vet, but the concept of population medicine or herd health isn't for veterinarians. It's not so much day-to-day -day conversation for human medical personnel, but veterinarians really bring that much better to the fight, and CDC recognizes that. I think each year they bring in more and more veterinarians to their EIS program, yeah, we definitely have that really unique training with all that herd health and epidemiology that we are very skilled at looking at different trends and um, figuring out data and how all this research goes together. So, I mean, I'm just sitting here with my mouth hanging open a little bit. Like, that's really cool that you got to work with the CDC and the UN. I mean, 
what was it like working with, I mean, all those people from all over the world at one point, that must've been a surreal experience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, anytime that you, that you are brought into another culture, it humbles you to realize that you, you know nothing about them and their world and you do everything you can to immerse yourself in it and absorb it as much as you can and become part of their world so you can be the best help and best support for them on these projects. And that's part of the adventure. And, you know, it's challenging. You know, you try and make sure you don't say the wrong greeting to the wrong person and you learn all that very quickly. But again, that that's part of the challenge on top of the medical mission and, and the, you know, the medical part of that you're you know, connecting with, you know, there's a lot more to it when you work overseas. And so how long were you active duty in the military? So I had the four years reserve credit and then I was on active duty for 22 years, two months and 22 days. Wow. That might be a lucky number with all those twos. <laughs> You know, that just ends up in your, you know, the final paperwork for the military. So that's, yeah, it was just interesting numbers. Wow. And thank you for your service. I mean, the men and women of this country are just truly amazing and do so many fantastic things that, especially like veterinarians where you don't even know that they are involved with feeding our troops and keeping all our, you know, bomb dogs safe so that they can sniff out and keep all of our other military men and women safe. So it's really, truly amazing what they do. Yeah, we are a little bit of a behind the scenes. It's called combat service support. You know, so we're kind of, we're not the front lines. We don't hand the bullets to the soldiers, but we protect all those layers in some, some way, just like other medical personnel you know, behind the scenes. And, and I, you know, I even did a briefing once for commanders in Afghanistan called the apple on your plate and showed them the logistics that it took to protect that apple all the way to getting to their soldiers in the farthest corners of the mountains of Afghanistan, because uh, it is pretty impressive logistics. And veterinarians are there at every point from the source through the handling, the storage, and making sure that it's protected because, you know, obviously, you know, foodborne illness can wipe out a unit of soldiers very quickly, but some can malicious intent. So both of those are part of a, the huge part of the mission for an army veterinarian. You know, you can look at history in the Civil War that, that there were more losses from disease and non-battle injuries than there were from battle. You know, we're doing much better nowadays on that because of army veterinarians and, and general, you know, general health knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It seems like, um, you know, dehydration due to either vomiting or diarrhea used to be one of the number one killers of humans before our medicine got really well. And we were able to understand food science and, um, kind of hygiene and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And we, of course, work closely with the public health veterinarians and the preventive medicine technicians out in the field because of those things you just mentioned, sanitation, you know, making sure they have comfortable sleep quarters so they get quality sleep. You know, it's all tied together to, you know, keep anybody going out in an austere environment. Yeah, absolutely. So super important to keep everyone healthy. And is there anywhere in the world that you haven't gone yet that you still want to go to? (laughs) 
Oh, gosh, about 100 countries, I think. In fact, yes, I'm one of the many frustrated millions that, you know, all my trips in the last couple of years have been canceled repeated times. Um, I had about five more countries scheduled. And no, I am trying to knock them out. In fact, the year after uh, I retired from the military, I said I wanted to go see penguins in Antarctica. So I did. Long story short, I ended up on a trip to the Arctic with a group of veterinarians to go to the North Pole and, and see and fauna up there. And it was just absolutely incredible. So yeah, I haven't lost the gypsy bug for travel at all. And it's nice to go to places where they're not trying to kill us as easily. So that part is, is great. I'm going to try and keep traveling as long as I can to any number of places. I just rebooked my trip to climb the remote temples of Nepal and Bhutan. This will be the third time I'm trying to get there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, fingers crossed you get there this time because that sounds like an amazing trip. It would be. It would be. But, you know, there's so many places that have special, you know, something special about them that aren't always on the, the tourist books or, you know, make all the big pictures on the internet, but there's some pretty cool stuff out there. And the more you get out there, the more you travel, the more you want to peel back the onion layer and see, you know, just not to the big tourist spots, but get in and see the, the local people, culture, you know, walk their walk a little bit with them. That's the fun part of uh, travel. Yeah, it is to, to live a life, a day in the life of a local where you're traveling really gives you think more the essence of the place where you travel than, I mean, seeing all the tourist attractions, obviously, like, you know, if I went to France, seeing the Eiffel Tower is definitely something I would do. <laughs> but then, you know, going to the little coffee shops and the bakeries that they go to and, you know, seeing how they commute everywhere and, you know, seeing different popular places that only mom and pop, you know, friends know of that has like the best food in the city, but you'd never find it on a pamphlet. Exactly. And that was, probably one of the biggest gifts of, of being able to deploy somewhere and stay locally, work with the local people, the local government, the local military, whichever project I was on, and be able to see that side of things that most tourists never would. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. This is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. Yeah, that's really interesting because you get to, you know, see how the military, you know, interacts with all these different cultures and, and interacts with all these um, different people all over the world. And they must have translators and things. Did you learn any new languages among your travels? I mean, I, it blows my mind how many different ones that, you know, people probably that people speak all over the world. It's, it's mind blowing. 
Yeah, I mean, when you go to a new country and you're only going to be there for a few months, you know, you definitely make the effort to learn uh, respectful greetings, how to ask for the bathroom. You know, there's some, there's some pretty immediate things in context that you do ask and learn. And, um, you know, I spoke German growing up. So I, you know, when I was stationed in Germany and traveling around from there, um, that was very helpful. I speak very bad Spanish, but anything <laughs> been able to get by quite well in a lot of places, including Italy, actually even Spanish helped there. In Sudan, when we were working in the refugee camps, uh, it was amazing how much Arabic I picked up, just seeing it, getting it in context. And so you try and absorb that as much as you can, just like I mentioned before, the culture and, and the traditions of each place, language is part of that. And it's actually kind of fun. I used to try to learn to count to 10 in every country that I went to. I probably got it when I left, because uh, if you don't use it, you do lose it. But it was quite fun to, to at least try. And I still know my Arabic numbers pretty well because I had used it so much and was able to draw the numbers and, and in fact, was able to, to bridge worlds using that when I was in a refugee camp in Sudan and we were interviewing some women in a hut and there wasn't room for all of us. So I was sitting outside in the very hot Africa sun with holding my raincoat over my head as shade. And when a lady kind of came around some of the bramble bush that made the little barriers around the camp and she started motioning me to go with her. Okay. Well, I kind of, looked where she was taking me, her hut was under the one tree that was left in the area. It was a very large tree. So it was a little spot of shade. I walked over to the tree and she brought out one of those very little tiny stools that are about four inches tall with a little sinewy seat. And I sat down on there. And then her, her little boy, who was probably about three, came out and we just sat there. They were just squatting next to me and in the little shady spot. And I was never so frustrated in my life that I couldn't speak every language there was, which was, you know, would be my one wish from the genie in the lamp. But I thought, well, the only thing I know in Arabic is numbers. So I just started drawing the numbers in the sand with my finger. And then the little boy started laughing. I don't know if he's laughing at my numbers or how I said them, but he just started laughing. And then the mother started laughing. And so we're all sitting there smiling under the one shade tree in a refugee camp in Sudan. And it was truly a moment of worlds colliding. And those are the kind of moments that, that just made all of the difficulties and challenges of travel and planning and all the hiccups and everything that can go on with these missions. It's those little moments that just will remain sparks in my memories forever. Yeah, that's really sweet. And just the simplicity of the interaction, just numbers, and then they're getting a, a kick out of you trying to communicate <laughs> with them through the numbers and, and you know, everyone just kind of enjoying the shade and that little tiny spot together is really sweet. Those are the moments that, that made it all worth it, is simple little things like that. That's really awesome. And I bet you have, I bet we could talk for like, you know, days about all the, you know, those little moments that you get everywhere with people. And it makes you realize everyone isn't really that different when you break it down. Oh, that's the, um, 
the concept many people have said that we're much more the same than we are different no matter where we walk from and and that is true that is so true and you know those parents want the best for their children and in whatever environment whatever country whatever culture um, a lot of us just want similar things and in fact i after after all this travel I said the biggest gift of all was was perspective after being in some pretty remote rough places and seeing how people live and the fact that some places I've been will never ever have the opportunity and comforts that we have here back home and so after coming from some places like Liberia or Sudan I wanted to come back to the U.S. and hand somebody a little teacup full of perspective. And I wanted to be able for them to drink it and get the perspective that I came home with. Because, you know, you come back here and you see people whining about the smallest things and and you're just shaking your head because you think, my God, we've got, you know, we're not perfect. Our country's not perfect. And we could criticize it all day, but there's other places we'll never even dream of what we have. And so that cup of perspective, which is the title of the book I've never written, is what I wish I could bring back from all my experiences around the world and and give to somebody, you know, my young niece and nephew, I would love for them. I wish I could bring that back for them and hand it to them and, you know, let them instantly know it all, but they can't, they can't, they need to go and do walk that walk on their own and learn that too. But I try, I still try and tell the story. And, and try and give them some of that perspective. But they're really, you know, even my little story I just told you, it's it just the words don't capture enough of the, the environment and everything around it. The words just aren't enough. Well, I still think you should write that book. <laughs> I think it would be a fantastic book to have all your stories kind of cataloged in one binder. <laughs> It's a possibility. I did, you know, I have a photo album on my virtual pictures from every country. I have a folder for every country, you know, so at least I have the visual reminders of where I was and, and, you know, projects I was involved with. Yeah, that's really awesome. And it does really make you put in perspective how small your problems are, you know, especially if, you know, our listeners are in vet school and they're freaking out over, you know, exams or the NAVLI or, or life problems too, that seem to love to add more stress onto school, that keeping that gratitude and that thankfulness and that perspective that you are still so lucky to be where you are and that, you know, some people aren't as lucky as you are. Exactly. But when you're in vet school, you have so much energy going to just surviving and trying to get through the requirements of a very challenging uh, academic world that, you know, it, you do need to focus on yourself and, and moving forward the right way. And, and so it is hard to, you know, look around and uh, realize, oh, things aren't as bad as it looks right now. But once you get out from that, once you get away from that ac- academic environment, then the sky's the limit. You know, you can, you can look around and apply it in so many different ways. And veterinarians just have an amazing, amazing number of opportunities, you know, what they can do with that knowledge. 
We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Quincy Hawley, and I'm here to tell you about a new show. It's Vet Candy Rounds with the Hawleys. That's right, Dr. Tierra, the love of my life, and I have teamed up to bring you the most fascinating cases in the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or a podcast platform of your choice, only on Vet Candy Radio. And what would you say to someone that's, you know, that loves to travel or is thinking about maybe pursuing a career in the military? What either a piece of advice or something that you would tell them to think about or to ponder or to, you know, say, go for it? Well, first of all, it takes a special kind of person to want to join and stay in the military. You know, it's a crazy adventure. It can reward you, you know, in so many different ways that you don't even realize when you sign up. But probably that piece of advice would be don't be afraid to be out of your comfort zone. When you get into something that you don't think you know enough, you don't have the background, you don't have the experience, that's okay. You just tackle it and, and gain all that a little bit of a time, a little bit at a time, because you can't know it all instantly. But when you go, no matter what, you know, whichever route a veterinarian pursues, uh, using their knowledge from school, you, you don't have to be afraid of walking into something you don't know. It's scary. It's challenging. You might screw up and you have to get through being able to recover from that. But the rewards after getting through it and, and walking that one step further and, and learning from it, growing from it, you can't put that into words. And, you know, I, I've tried a lot of things in the military that it didn't go well. I went through all the military training when I was with the infantry up at Fort Drum. I went through their, their assault school with them, and that wasn't fun. It was challenging. I got through it. I did get through it. I wasn't very graceful or any super athlete or anything uh, getting through it. It was kind of crawling through by my fingernails, actually. But it was a pretty dang good feeling when I was there with the infantry at their air assault school graduation. Did the same thing with airborne school. Ended up at a unit that had the opportunity to go be a paratrooper. You know, if you you know see the movie Band of Brothers and see the early paratroopers, mm -hmm. you know, I'm tied to them forever. You know, I went out and tried that and jumped out of perfectly good airplanes. And that's so cool. <laughs> you know, I am no I am no super athlete. I'm uh, I'm an active person, but I'm not athletic. And so go try it. I crawled in to the finish line sometimes. Uh, then, you know, I went through SEER school, which is the survival school with special forces. It's the last part that special forces uh, guys need before they get their, their special forces tab on their uniform. Or it was set up like that back then. And again, I mean, I look back and it's almost embarrassing and some, some of it. But now I know some, you know, I've been through some of those things that were serious gut check and it helps you face anything after that. 
you know, once you've been through something that challenging and that difficult, whether you did it very well or not, you can feel really good that you got through it somehow. And that can be applied to anything, anything a veterinarian wants to tackle, um, that you can try it. Part of the learning curve is how do you get up and, and keep going? And I think that's a lot of what the military taught me is I signed up for those crazy schools that were not typical <laughs> for a veterinarian to go to. But I love that I did because it helped me walk the walk with our field soldiers, you know, with our infantry, with our special forces. I got to go and walk the walk a little bit with them and get a little bit more perspective on what they go through, what, what the military is like through their eyes. Because there's some medical personnel in the military that, and they can choose that, that they have families, they have other priorities, that they want to stay back in the U.S., they want to stay in a clinic, they don't want to deploy, they want that continuity in a different way. So that's almost a 180 from the path I took, but it's still there. It is an option for medical personnel in the military. I loved being able to work with the soldiers on the ground, you know, go shoot the same weapons as the infantry or the special forces, go out to the range with them, you know, kind of see what they're learning and how they're learning things. And I loved it. I actually did end up being a pretty good shot, you know, from all that, those guys too, you know, so those options are there, but again, there was, even within the military as a veterinarian, we, if you asked 10 different veterinarians from the army, we're each going to give you very different stories. Mm-hmm. You know, they each could have their own different path based on their priorities, their interests, their passions, their talents and abilities. You know, it took you wherever you wanted to go. Right. And I believe you can get um, some board certifications through the military as well. It might be preventative medicine. It's, no, it's actually a requirement for you to become board certified to make lieutenant colonel. Oh, okay. So when you're in the Army as a veterinarian, you don't just have to fulfill all the requirements as an Army officer because there's schools to get promoted along the way. You also have to pursue your medical credentials and improve. So you actually have to be board certified. And preventive medicine is just one, one option. We have toxicologists, pathologists, surgeons, uh, radiologists, you know, there's lab animal medicine specialists. It varies year to year what's offered. But if you can justify a clinical specialty and what you can, how you can support the military with it, um, you can probably do it. Wow. That's really awesome. Changes depending on budget and everything. But, but no, it's quite diverse on, on what the veterinarians can do as their postgraduate work. Wow, that's really awesome. I didn't know there was such a range of um, specialties that you could do in the military as well. That's really interesting. Yep, so there's some that do stay more clinical. They stay pure clinical their whole career. So they probably will not deploy. And there's many veterinarians that do not deploy at all. And they can decide, can you decide if you want to be deployed or not? Depending on your specialty, yes. Yeah, when in your earlier years, um, there's what's called garrison command. It's where you stay home. And then there's the, it's called T-O-N-E or deployable units. And so the, they will not assign you to a deployable unit if you don't want to do that. Oh, okay. We have enough people that want to do those deployable units and, and risk having to go somewhere all the time 
Um, but again, that those options are there for veterinarians, uh, both pathways. Oh, that's great. That's good for people to know too, that there's place, there's ways that you can do more clinical and there's ways that you can do more travel and public health and food safety type routes. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. If you're like me, you want to improve your skills, and that means improving your clinical confidence. That's why Vet Candy created a master course in respiratory disease. The master course is taught by a board-certified criticalist and delivers a thorough evaluation of the science and clinical practice skills needed to master respiratory disease from diagnosis and management to client counseling. Plus, when you complete the course, you earn a certificate of completion as a certified respiratory educator and exclusive tools to celebrate, recognize, and share your accomplishment. And what's even more exciting? The course is free and provides race and New York State approved continuing education credits. This master course is brought to you by Trudell Animal Health, the makers of the AeroCat Chamber. You can start helping your patients breathe better by taking it for free today at myvetcandy.com forward slash respiratory. Thank you so much, Dr. Tammy, for joining me today. Um, I hope our listeners enjoyed your fantastic and really unique stories. And some of them were pretty touching as well. So that was really something unique. Thank you so much. And thank you. And thank you to all our Vet Candy listeners. Um, I hope you really enjoyed this show and it brought you a little bit of perspective um, into your life today. So catch us on the next episode. If you have any veterinarians that you want to hear from, go ahead and shout us out on social media at MyVetCandy or my personal page at Dr. Shannon DVM. And we will try to get those guests on the show for you. We love bringing the most interesting people in veterinary medicine to our listeners. So I hope you guys have a great day. Thank you so much. This has been Vet Candy IRL with Shannon Gregoire. It's Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.